Welcome to Soundpost, a podcast dedicated to exploring the meaning of concert music in today's world through conversations with its leading artists. I am Carlos Miguel Prieto. And I am Raul Gomez. And our guest today is a cellist with a promising career. He might be famous one day. His name is, uh, let me check here, Yo-Yo Ma. Yo-Yo, welcome to Soundpost. Yes, thank you, thank you. I'm, you can call me Jojo. Oh, okay. You know, yeah. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so sorry about that. Because Yo-Yo sounds like that other guy, and I want to have nothing to do with, with that other guy. I understand. So <laughs> let me start with this. This is my first question for you. And I, can I just call you Yo-Yo? Well, it'll be easier. Of course, okay. of course. So, all right. so you wake up every morning, you look in the mirror, and you say, oh my goodness, it's Yo-Yo Ma, and then you're starstruck for the first 10 minutes. How do you get over that to start your day? Um, well, since I'm not myself, um, this is very <laughs> difficult to answer. I think basically I wake up every morning, I pinch myself, and if it hurts, I realize I'm still alive. And that's the first thing. That's a good start. And the second thing is I read someplace that Satya Nadella, who's the CEO of Microsoft, gets up every morning and he does something every day that takes five seconds. Now, I hope this is true. Otherwise, I'm, you know, it could be in trouble. <laughs> um, but apparently he says that he just wakes up and he asks himself, one, what is he looking forward to? Mm. And two, what he's grateful for. It takes five seconds and then he puts his two feet on the ground. Now, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Here's the guy who runs Microsoft but he sets himself up with that attitude and that one little click, five seconds, gets him to be in a good place, ready for the day. I think that's something I'd like to try because sometimes I put my feet on the ground before I think anything because usually it's I have to go to the bathroom. And that's, <laughs> you know, it's like, my question is, do I get to the bathroom fast enough? <laughs> Should I have gotten up earlier to get to the bathroom, right? Yeah. These are the stupid questions I ask myself. But then the CEO of Microsoft says something else. I should learn from him. Very good. Yo-Yo, thank you so much for this interview and for starting it the way you always do things, which is with a combination of depth and humor. In these interviews, we have talked to a bunch of people who have been associated with the Orchestra of the Americas, and we've always started asking them about what they've been doing during these challenging times. So can you give us a little bit of your own life during these days? Well, the first thing that I can say is that, so now I've been home since March 10th. So it's now almost three and a half months that I've been home. And it's the longest that I've been with my wife, not traveling in 42 years of marriage. So obviously we're all going through COVID-19, but what is unusual about that is that my usual has been, and Carlos Miguel, you would understand that as well as all the people in the world that travel for a living, is that I've been gone 27 years out of the 42 years I've been married. And so my normal was always no two days were alike. And to go from that 
to a normal where actually I'm working more or less from the office, sort of like a nine to five job, sometimes on the weekends, but basically with the weekends less going to the office. I'm living an abnormal life for me. And it's been an amazing thing to actually experience that. And I have to say, if there's one good thing personally I can speak is to experience regularity I am so grateful for that. And I've also become extremely grateful for so many things that I used to take for granted, which is to have food on the table, a meal, and to be thankful for food that exists and to have the kinds of conversations that I might have had when I was 16 years old, thinking about the value of life, to think about really the preciousness of friendships and of family and of things that I think, Carlos Miguel, you actually are always, you've impressed me as someone who's always been very much aware of that, having family very much at the center of what you do, in spite of your peripatetic nature of going around the world and traveling. So I've always admired that in you, you know, I've tried to live a life that had, thanks to my wife, who had these great values of bringing up children with an incredible consistency that allowed them to really thrive and develop. But I've been sort of the odd man out, leaving home and coming home, but almost always stressed being at home because it's like I was either recovering or preparing to go again. And to not have that kind of stress is incredible. So have you thought about when life goes back to something close to normal, what would you like to see, let's say, changed in your life versus the past? Because that's something that I'm going through, a process of analysis of the past. Have you gone through this process? Yes, I'm dying to find out how you're thinking of your life because this is a moment where so many of us are thinking, you know, many people talk about a reset. Some people object to the word reset because they're kind of, as much as we crave the things that we know, we also know that probably things won't go back to something so-called normal. And the way I think of it is in three ways. I think of it almost as a weather pattern, that the first lush of COVID-19 was a blizzard, a sudden blizzard, and that we had to deal with an emergency. But after the shock of the first, where we're just basically fumbling along in emergency mode, trying to survive, we're now thinking about surviving in a different way, which is to prepare for a long winter. And what is that like? And then the third stage, which a lot of people are talking about in regard to systemic racism, for example, you can't wipe it off the table in a week. And what is institutional racism? What is structural racism, systemic? So that is not even a winter, but I think of that as an ice age. And how do we deal not only for myself and not only for my loved ones and not only for the sector and not only for my community, but it's for everybody. You know, an ice age is going to affect the whole planet. It's not a country, it's a planet. And so how do we do that? Obviously, Ice Age implies long-term and many generations. So I think the trick in my mind is to think 
all three things at the same time and to try and be able to devote enough time to think about the long term that I'm not even going to be here for so that it doesn't appear 10 years from now to bite us and for me to say, oh, I wish I had thought about it. That's hard to do because we tend to think about the urgent more than the important. The urgent always comes first. Oh, I have to go to the bathroom in the morning. That's urgent. What's important is what I'm going to do with my life. But usually the urgent <laughs> takes precedence over the important. But this is the moment when I think we can actually think about the important and make that the urgent. And how do we do that? Yes. And Yoyo, you've always used your platform to speak about things that are important to you, in addition to music specifically. And three words that you use often and that I really like are trust, truth, and service. Mm. So in the context of, of this situation and looking forward, the way you're saying, how do we as artists move forward and serve our communities in a way that's beneficial for the long term, for the long haul? Well, you know, Ro, it's in some ways, in everything that we do, when things are off kilter, where we're in crisis, what do we go to? What is it that George Floyd went to his mother, right? His last words were calling out to his mother. Or you go to things that are so core. What are core values? If you're a physicist, you have first principles. If you're a human being, what are your first principles? And I think for me, the core values of, well, trust. If we don't have trust, it's sort of like the basis of everything. If trust breaks down, we have nothing. Nothing that we build will stand, whether it's a musical life or whether it's a composition or whether it's a village or it's a house or it's a discipline or it's a community. And from the trust that we build over and over again, you could then have the foundations of looking for what is true. Such an important part of the conversation today is race relations. I'd like to ask your opinion about the following situation, which happens most of the conservatories or most of the orchestras. We are desperately looking for answers for what surrounds us as far as all these troubles. Yet, we still have audiences in our orchestras that are predominantly white, at least in the US and mostly Europe. And we have a very hard time being inclusive in the classical music world, at least in the orchestra. I have said publicly in this platform and others that in order for orchestras to go on and even thrive, they have to think beyond the envelope and incorporate generosity and inclusion into their mission statements. But how do we do that when most of the inner city kids cannot afford a violin? Most of the intercity kids do not probably have anyone close to them who plays the cello. So is it possible to dream of a new reality where industry leaders can actually pair with people like you and with orchestras in order to make the classical music world something much more inclusive and generous? Absolutely. I think it is possible. I think maybe you know more about what they call, you know, the different generations, right? They're the, the baby boomers, they're the millennials, Gen Y, Gen Z, 
right? I think from what I read and what I gather from talking to younger people, you think about what they care about. I think the baby boomers, my generation, often blamed by the millennials for handing them a world that's dysfunctional, that where they can't do better than their parents, a world where they have fewer possibilities, they graduate from, if they are able to go to higher education institutions, and they leave with debt that takes years for them to pay off, they can't afford housing. And then you get to Gen Z, where people say that they tend not to own cars, they tend to want to live in cities, that's probably also, that may change, but that they're actually willing, if they have partners, to actually share more in parenting, and they may not go choose living in a place that's the higher value for job, and salary for career, but rather for quality of life. And they're extremely concerned about climate change. They're extremely concerned about rising oceans. They're extremely concerned about energy. And they will do things, maybe their habits start differently than for the baby boomers, but I have to catch myself doing things that are not good. Like if I forget to turn off the light or I use too much water or I'm driving someplace instead of walking or I'm going into a store and I don't spend more time trying to buy something that doesn't have plastic in it or a single-use plastic. These are habits, lifelong habits that have been inculcated in me that I actually have to work hard to disabuse myself of. It's like practicing having a bad habit. And then you have to kind of unlearn the habit before you learn some good habits. And that's as opposed to starting off learning some good habits. So what I've learned, and I'm going to get to a practical thing, orchestras work as a group. They're a bunch of artistic people who all have individual expression, but they find use and value in coming together and making the whole bigger than the addition of, of each individual. But I beg to differ in that way, because this may be a moment where we celebrate the individuals within a group. So I'm thinking all the organizations I know that are large, theater groups, opera, ballet, dance, orchestra, mm -hmm. they all are suffering because they can't perform in large spaces. If we loosen up, we might be able to perform for 50 people or 100 people, and then suddenly the economics don't make sense. But I'm thinking, what would happen if we adopted just one simple idea? The idea is just one-on-one. -on -one. Actually, the first principle of music is about reaching the aesthetic interior or spiritual interior of one individual at a time, right? You could have a thousand people. These are a thousand individuals that each are uniquely experiencing an individual moment of reception of something that is hopefully valuable for them. Why not reach in and go back to first principles and just say, you are actually going for the needs of people who need music, one person at a time, one-on-one. -on -one. Each musician finds out from another person who they are, what they need, what they think about, what their inner life and inner light is all about, what makes them tick, and then to think, what can I offer this person? 
does this person like this kind of music, that kind of sound, that kind of instrument, mix and match? That's how we first learned because we had a teacher that reached into us and said, this is important. And everybody has a subscription base or an audience base and we could reach deep into them and make that the audience development. And that kind of development is so deep and so personal, which is exactly the way music or an aesthetic experience should be. Otherwise, it's just a consumer item. Let me ask this to both of you. So I think it's in some way beyond race, but it's about the cultural experience of anybody and, and what type of music they have been exposed to in their lifetimes, what kind of art, what kind of entertainment. So there are people whose cultural world is pretty far away from what we do as orchestral or classical musicians. So do we have anything to offer to these people? Or should we as industry, as a business, as culture, focus on the people who are more likely to be open to what we bring to them directly? So what do we do? We are supposedly literate musicians. And what does literacy give us? The ability to learn whatever we need to learn. If we were not literate musicians, we would be literate just using our ears, right? I mean, that's actually a first principle of music. You like it, it's yours. You make the other into you. When did people start categorizing themselves as smaller than who they are? When did that happen? So I've been playing for patients in hospitals for health workers and playing for high school graduations or for individuals and whatever. I've been basically using a phone or whatever other means and recording something, sometimes sending something directly because someone tells me someone is sick. So the music that I've played, it's available to absolutely everybody. You know, it's Bach, it's Schubert Ave Maria, it's Morricone, it's Piazzolla, it's Amazing Grace, it's Simple Gifts, it's things that we have in our third year, fourth year, fifth year instrumental music books that we go to school and learn. And these are, or Traumerai, or The Swan. It's like, who said that this is not the greatest thing that we can do if we have to do it one-on-one. -on -one. It's not written someplace. And I think I used to feel that way. I used to feel like, oh, you want me to play? Oh, I don't have anything to play. I need a pianist to play with me because you probably want me to play, you know, the Dvorak concerto. And I can't do that on my own. That's baloney. Because when you're thanking people for what they're putting out and they're coping with danger, health hazards, exhaustion, very tired feet, and you play them something, that's your way of thanking them. And you thank them with what is going to make them feel good. They're not thinking, oh, unless you deliver Beethoven or Bartok, I'm not going to feel good. No, you just dealt with three patients that are on ventilators. You know, I mean, what do you say to someone like that? right? It's just bringing back our common sense, our humanity, and not putting the layers of other things that we kind of go for at other times. When it matters, what is it that you can offer? Everybody has something to offer. And isn't that the first principle of, of music? 
I will share with you one thought that actually coincides with what you've just said. And I'm connected with more than one organization. Every single one has their own challenges and every single one has had an incredible situation of having musicians individually communicate with the audience. Even the most implausible a musician has come out and said, I, I want to share my music with someone. This to me is an, is an incredibly positive phenomenon. And one interesting thing about, let's say, the future of orchestras is this ability to trickle down music to one person or to a duo. So an orchestra could be conceivably in 40 different places at the same time okay, represented by, by individual musicians. And so many things that were the everyday life of orchestras are kind of meaningless or will be kind of meaningless. I'll give you an example, a rehearsal. A rehearsal, and that's the first thing I thought about, is an orchestral rehearsal in a way, it's not a waste of time, it's a wasted opportunity if it doesn't have an audience, if it doesn't communicate. So I, I actually foresee a situation where orchestras will actually become organizations that are completely different in the way that they communicate. In a way, they, they may become facilitators of small ensembles initially, but also when they are able to rehearse as a group, they will have to find opportunities for that rehearsal to be a performance for a hospital for a school or for some kind of generosity, which leads me to what I was going into before. So many of these ideas, generous ideas, need champions that we have had very hard time finding in the past. And by champions, I mean funders, people who pay for this. Since in the US, the government does not fund these initiatives, are you confident that this Generation Z is the generation that will define the future, will care for music, and how do we make them care for music enough so that our young people, the youngest people, are motivated to study music? Will music still make, let's say, economic sense? We all agree on the generous aspect. We all agree on the communication, yet, we have to completely change the model in order to be able to do all these things. Do you trust the young people who will lead the world to fund these initiatives? Well, I think, I think so I'm talking to you who is a, uh, a vibrant and visionary leader and you operate in actually many spheres and the Orchestra of Americas is all the countries in North and South America. How cool is that? That is an unbelievable platform and now multi-generational, including young people. And it's not just young people. Young people should lead because it is going to be their world more than yours and mine because we're just that much older. So what can we do? What can you and I, and Raul, you're still very young, so you know, you're kind of in between, but how, how can the three of us each, to the best that we can, 
use whatever is in our experience to facilitate the thing that is desirable and we think also necessary, right? Because we care about orchestral music, we care about this genre of music. Well, first of all, the genre can actually be, if we think of this as a literacy genre, then in that case, the first thing I would want to say is, let's place this music that we do as one of the greatest things that's been invented as part of world music, of which we're not considered part of. Now, why is that? That's a complete craziness. So that's, you know, that's on the policy side, that's crazy. Because if we wanted to, we could supposedly play absolutely every kind of music that's right. And so what about management models? I think the American orchestra model, I don't know enough about this, but this is what I've sort of gathered over the years. But I think it was in the 60s that there was a huge acceleration of, of the buildup of orchestras funded by the Ford Foundation, which now has very different mission and leadership, which is great. But that was built on kind of like a 50s model, right? The way that our high schools were built on the 1910 model. So what if we thought of our orchestras as instead of 100 people, which in some places the dissonances happen within the unions who speak and remember what happened with the Carnegie riots and knew what people went through to fight to actually get some rights for musicians. But that's like a long time ago, but that still is very present. What if we thought of these young musicians as startups, the energy of startups, instead of coming to work at a 1960s version of GM, you are like kick-ass young folk who are there to change the world and have them participate in determining what the mission of the institution is. Because we're kind of custodians and they will be future custodians, but they've got the energy of young people that says, you know, we're going to change the world. And what needs changing? What does the world need? Now, one of the things I think about is, what about the 17 goals of the United Nations that want gender equity, good jobs, clean water, good energy? What about no poverty? And what's funny is that this is a moment where businesses are actually talking about, instead of shareholder value, multi-stakeholder value. Okay, how serious are they about that? I don't know, but they're certainly talking about it. Business Roundtable, Larry Fink from BlackRock is every annual letter saying this is important. And now he's going to buy into, you know, Black-owned businesses. So there's money attached to it. And this is different because the young people that I'm talking or I'm listening to are saying, enough talk. Don't have me talk and join in. I want to show me the action. Yeah. And I'll, I'll share with you, Yo-Yo, I do a lot of my work with young musicians of, of all ages. Yeah. And many of them are highly advanced. They're going to go into conservatories and pursue a career in music. And I, I like to tell people that I live surrounded by optimism because one of my favorite things to do is during rehearsal breaks. You know, I'm like looking at my scores or whatever, and I overhear conversations of these young musicians talking about high school and talking about their plans and just talking about their world. And some of the things that I hear just are what 
sort of like keep me going and keep me inspired. And speaking of young people, um, I know you have grandchildren. I have a, a, 15 mo- a 15-month-old daughter, and she's into two things right now. She's into books by Sandra Boynton and cows. So your video that you made, Moving Home, yes, has been played in our house many times. Oh. Now, you have been the recipient of many awards, Kennedy Center Honors, Presidential Medal of Freedom, but you recently said in an interview that one of the most significant awards you've received was the first Fred Rogers Award. So why is that important to you? Well, because I think of the way that he did his work. First of all, he made children his mission. And the way he talked about his work was that he always thought that the space between the screen and the child's eyeballs is sacred space. You never mess with it. And you could tell when, he, when he's talking to you as an individual, it's about you, the individual. It's not another person that's, you know, a fan or a young person. I need to kind of sign this. How can I get out of this quickly? He is totally focused on the individual. That's about as good a lesson for me as a performer that I could get, right? How do you focus totally at the moment on the individual and the testimony for that is that he handwrites every single person who writes him he handwrites a letter back and he sends me whenever i've appeared on this show the letters that have referred to something that we did together he sends me copies of their letter and his letter back so i know this is absolutely genuine and he spends obviously a huge amount of time and because the work that he does, that sacred space, when it's energized, he never lets go of it. It's not like, okay, now I forget about you. And I don't know anybody who is a public figure who does that to that extent. And for that, it's like, wow. And after 9-11, he was the one who said, you know, when Pete came out of retirement and people asked him, well, what, Mr. Rogers, what do we tell our children? And he said, you know, my mother used to say, when there's a crisis, you can always look for who the helpers are. And right now, I want to look for who the helpers are so that we could actually look to either thank them or maybe we have something to offer that can actually help them go further in in what they do. I think that's the role of a musician. So many people are dying now. And I think... The space between, the little tiny space between life and death is sacred space. It's space that every single one of us will go through. And it's space that if we honor that, and if we honor that with music, that is the kind of memorability that what we seek in live performance, in education, and actually in everything we do. But that's an opportunity to honor that moment. Very basic. We all know that, but sometimes when things get busy, you know, it gets very noisy and it it recedes. So I hope that we can find a way structurally to not make that recede and to Carlos Miguel's point, to actually make that stick in a way where companies that want to prize their employees' longevity and not leaving the company, how do you do that? You treat them well. And you actually save money if you treat your employees well. So there's some, again, some basic principles. But 
to your point, Carlos Miguel, I want to ask, what are you thinking about? What does the next 10 years look for you for the Orchestra of Americas, for your orchestra in New Orleans, the Louisiana Symphony, the Orchestra de Minería? How are you thinking in each case and the National Symphony of Mexico? There's a lot of stuff that you're obviously dealing with. How are you dealing with all of those different places? Well, every one of these institutions has reacted very proactively. You are now part of one of the reactions of the Orchestra of the Americas. The Orchestra of the Americas has taken a huge leap into a platform that is like an online academy where our faculty members, most of which you know, and our soloists and even people who have not been our faculty members but are sensational musicians are actually leading courses. So the Orchestra of the Americas has really taken a step forward into a new platform, which is online academy and online learning. Uh, the National Symphony of Mexico, which is a huge orchestra, government supported. So it, it has the government, let's say, backing. Musicians are getting paid. The musicians themselves, with my help and with the help of a company started a new Facebook page, a new way to communicate. I've interviewed about 25% of the orchestra one-on-one -on -one or in collective groups, thereby getting to meet individuals with whom I've worked 12 years yet did not know them. The same thing happens with Mineria. In Mexico, we videotape every single concert we do, which means that these two Mexican institutions have been putting out two or three concerts per week since March with incredible numbers, with much, much, much bigger audiences than what we had live. The Louisiana Philharmonic, which is a 67 musician run and musician owned orchestra, is rethinking its future in a way that will be very interesting because for me, that's a laboratory of how you can start making an orchestra really immerse itself in a community. I'll give you some numbers. New Orleans is 60 to 70% African-American. Our audience is less than 5% African-American. So that's why, for me, the new future of an orchestra, like the Louisiana Philharmonic, is one where the orchestra has to completely immerse itself in the community in a way that follows your one-on-one -on -one right. initiative, which I absolutely adored. Yet, it's always, like many American orchestras, has barely made it financially over the last years because we rely on a model of individual giving. Right and on 30% ticket sales based on filling an audience. So we will have to reinvent ourselves, think beyond the envelope. I am very motivated by examples that I see elsewhere, examples that I see in uh, organizations like World Reader that uh, my sister-in-law has worked with that completely reinvented the way kids would learn to read in Africa. If somebody from Amazon was able to fund World Reader, we can probably find a couple of people who can fund an orchestra in Louisiana that will think beyond the envelope. So for me, the two general words are generosity and inclusion. Again, why? Because the inclusion will not happen if we keep playing in a hall where people do not feel welcome because it's not part of their everyday life. And 
my theory is that we will have to go places rather than have people come to us. So it's a completely new model and a new model that is yet to be written. But my obsession is to find partners that will fund this new way of thinking and that will also allow young people like the musicians from Raul's orchestra or the musicians from the Orchestra of the Americas to follow their dream and know that they can make a living through it. This is for me the moment where the real world leaders, okay, the people who run the companies that keep us going need to look at the arts and need to look at music in a way that doctors of the soul and healers, social healers. I don't see a future for an orchestra in the same way we were looking at it in the past. Thank you very much. I think that's beautiful. I, my hope after hearing you speak, Carlos Miguel, is that you would actually write an article about it. So a lot of people actually hear what you're saying because this is a moment where the dissemination of activity is incredibly important for other people because you say you model yourself certain things that you know in the circles that you travel in. So that's great. But other people should be able to hear that and then take from you what might work for them. And without that, people are then still in isolation and are just dealing then with their own inventions within the bubble as opposed to a much greater sort of lateral appreciation of what is happening around. Raul, I'd love to hear from you. What are your thoughts in those three months that in terms of what you think is a possible future that is really worth going through hardship in order to win that reality? It's been a, a you know an extremely challenging time, as you were saying, Yo-Yo, and the reality of the world right now, you know, the pandemic and political and social unrest. These are serious things and serious problems that we all need to come together to work towards solving. Now, at the same time, it has been an extremely exciting time to innovate, right? And to change and enhance and improve the way that we connect and the way that we inspire young musicians and empower them. And they're so creative, you know, I really don't have to look far for great ideas and great projects and just pure excitement. So we've been doing what many other uh, performing arts organizations are doing. We're finding ways to bring our programs online and to reach people in their homes through technology. But at the end of the day, what we come out of that with, it's just the idea that music is about connecting. And I know that this, this is something that's at the core of what you do as well. So as we go into next season and the year after that, just like, like everybody else, we will continue finding ways to keep that connection going and to create community through music, right? So it's this... It's a much greater sort of group beyond the size of the orchestra. So, and again, that's why I always feel like I'm, I'm filled with optimism, and that, that keeps me going. And I'm always inspired by people like you, like Carlos Miguel also, who are at the forefront of this journey. That's actually quite wonderful that in the midst of despair or in, in the midst of difficulty, you're all seeing opportunity, opportunity to, to reinvent or to, to find ways of going deeper and reaching into, into communities. Do you find, Carlos Miguel, uh, what are the, the impediments that you think you will face 
over the next 10 years in the reinvention process. You've mentioned funding. Is that something that you think you will find from other sources as you reach out and find a broader constituency? I think the impediments will be basically in people who think that the future should be similar to the way we dealt with the past. In other words, that our boards or our administrations could be, rather than seeking change, trying to hold on to ways of doing things that in the past were getting us into trouble. In, in my view, the more we look for young leadership, the more we look for bold initiatives, and the more that we have boards of organizations be open to real change and real generous change and real inclusive change, the more we will thrive. So to me, it goes into the world of saying, my age, I have to look at the people who are 20, 30 years younger than me and learn from them and be a facilitator leader rather than a leader who dictates. If you could give us your thoughts for after confinement as far as how much we as musicians can help. You've always motivated, you motivate people. Do you feel, do you sincerely feel that we can make a difference? Yes, I think that we can make a difference immediately in the possibilities that are given to us right now. And I think you're already exhibiting those methods by having an online academy and by making sure that it's not technology that drives it, but that it's actually the connection and the human relations that, that drive the enterprises. I think in the long range, there's a 30-year work that takes truly nurturing a generation from three to five years old on through to, to 35. And whatever we can do to facilitate what is desirable in the outlook of it, an individual anywhere in the world to be able to want to have a planetary view without giving up what is most precious about home and local traditions, but to have those twin arcs be completely sort of in one's head. And so that whatever is one's contribution, you're filling in what's missing in that arc that cannot be interrupted. If we can do that, then we win trust of people across boundaries, across nations, across ethnic groups, across genres of music. But we need to do that because nobody else is going to do it for us. And it actually involves everybody's input. And it actually puts us all on an equal footing in that we give what we can. But the point is offering. And, and that comes back to your point, Carlos Miguel, of the generosity part. You give generously from substance, from whatever you have, and that's worthwhile. Because if you do that, this is what gives us dignity, and this is what gives us meaning, and that's the essence of what music is. Yo-Yo, you have always, always been a motivator. You have always led by example. And I have to say that during these months, in my view, you have been more generous and more effective than ever. I know how difficult this time must be. We want to go do what we were doing before. I just want to say that what you have been doing in the last months is hugely motivating to me and is hugely motivating to people. 
please continue with the faith and the energy and the strength that you are exhibiting these these times. Thank you so much, Carlos Miguel. I look forward to two things from you. One is that you're going to write about what you're thinking about and what you're doing in an article, so that's shared broadly. And secondly, that we actually meet again so we can report on each other's activities on how we've taken steps from where we are right now to the next time we meet. Because I think it's very important to follow these steps as we move forward so that we share the knowledge and the experiences that we've gained in the interim period. Thank you, Yo-Yo. Let's take this interview as step one and the steps will, will continue. We have been talking with one of the most inspiring leaders and inspiring artists of our time, Yo-Yo Ma. This has been Soundpost. I'm Carlos Miguel Prieto. And I'm Raul Gomez. See you next time. Soundpost is a production of the Orchestra of the Americas group with additional support provided by MYS Portland. Visit theoagroup.org forward slash soundpost to learn more.